Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Ben, for leading us in song of worship. Well, this morning we're going to be in Titus uh, chapter 3, and those of the kids who are fifth grade and below, if you want to head to your classes, you can now. Uh, Your teacher will be out there to meet you in the foyer. Great. Uh, Titus chapter 3, if you need a Bible as well, the ushers uh, will be willing to give you one from the back. If you raise up your hand, have a Bible for this morning. The, the, we're in a, a series called Church Basics, and this is the third part of a three-part series, and so we'll be finishing up Titus this morning. Titus chapter 3. Well, um, our family, we had a blessed Thanksgiving, and I, I pray that yours did as well. Um, giving thanks to God for just his goodness, his mercy in our lives. Uh, and I know that um, some of us are going through hard things right now. He just, he, he comforts us. He's just so good. Um, as well as, I pray you got to eat a lots of food. <laughs> that's, the, that's my favorite part of Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Eat lots of food. And I, I, probably some of you have, I'm guessing you all have some sort of favorite recipe that you like uh, for Thanksgiving dinner. Um, I, I have... Uh, a, a favorite, and actually, I, I realized that Ben likes this yesterday. I didn't realize this. It's sweet potato casserole. It is my absolute favorite. Sweet potato. Yeah, there you go. Sweet potato casserole. And ever since I was a kid, I, I, would, I asked my mom to make it, and she would, you know, faithfully make it every year. And now my wife makes it. You got to be careful not to compare your wife and your mom's cooking. But um, I, I've survived that. They, they both make it very, very well. It. it, it Sweet potato casserole, it, it makes all the difference. And, and the key ingredient, which isn't secret at all, is just loads of brown sugar. You just pile it on top. And what it is, actually Ben described this yesterday, I didn't even know it. I, I'd, I'd been eating it all this long. It, it, it is a, it's a, a dish that's snuck into the meal as a dessert. It's like, it's really a meal, or it's a dish, but it's a dessert. And so you get to have it ahead of time. So that's what I like about it. This is what it is. Uh, Thanksgiving is a, a great time to celebrate. And we have these special recipes. This morning, our, just in, in this theme, we have a, a recipe of sorts from our text. It, it's a recipe for a working church. And the ingredients of this, we'll see, are worthy of our pursuit. So you'll see up on the screen, this is the big idea this morning. The gospel is the recipe for a working church. The ingredients are humility. This is going to be verses 1 through 3. Thankfulness, verses 4 through 8, and interdependence, verses 9 through 15. As the, the Thanksgiving meal, it, feels, it, it fills the room with that special aroma that you just crave and want. The scent of the gospel is the good works through Christ and his people. Those good works give off an aroma, a flavor of Jesus. Gospel-transformed people exude the fragrance of life to those who are being saved. Just as Jesus' life was a fragrant offering unto God um, that brought life, the works of um, Christ's people, the works of Jesus through his people, give off a fragrant aroma. The the gospel is the recipe for a working church. And so we're going to read chapter 3 this morning. But before we do, let me give you a little context. We haven't been in Titus for a little bit. So here is... The, the, the island of Crete. And Paul had gone there and he had established several churches. But the problem is false teachers came in, right? And they began to deceive the people and lead them astray. 
And so Paul writes this letter to Titus, a young man, his maybe a convert, convert of Paul, now a pastor there. He says, here, teach these things. Help to build up the church there. He writes this letter to him in Crete. And he, he exhorts Titus to share with the church that good works must be motivated by the gospel. And that those who are professing these false teachings and hurting them, they're denying the gospel by their works. We see that in Titus 1.16. Good works inspired and motivated by the gospel, they honor God, and they're a witness to the word, world to the goodness of Jesus. And this is what we see in Titus. So I'm going to read Titus chapter 3. You can follow along. I'll begin in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to send Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need, and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of God to us this morning. Uh, if you read um, Titus, or in particular this chapter, the, the things that are said here aren't really difficult. They're, in many ways, they're very plain. Some of Paul's writing, if you've read it, it's just, it, it is confusing. Peter actually tells us that. Some of the things he says are pretty confusing. But here, the, the concepts, concepts are relatively simple. It's really like a lot of practical application. It's not new here. But that doesn't mean that it's easy for us to live out. And we need to be exhorted and reminded in this way. In chapter 3, I think you saw it, there are three times that good works are called for us. We see it in verse 1. It says to be ready for every good work. And then in verse 8, it says be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then verse 14, learn to devote themselves to good works. Uh, Each of these exhortations, they, they make it clear that good works are part and parcel of following Jesus. And performing these works, it, it, it takes though training and practice and encouragement and growth and effort to live out that life. And so as we look at this passage this morning, ask yourself this question. Am I ready 
for the works that God has for me? Is my life exuding the aroma of Christ? And because this, this, this book actually is written to Titus who's speaking to a church, we want to ask us, ourselves corporate questions as a church too. Is our church as a whole devoted to good works? Is the fragrance of Jesus coming forth from this local community, this body here? We must ask that of ourselves. So the first ingredient in this working church, we're going to see it, is humility in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, what does it say? It says, it says remind them. Well, who's them? Them is the church there in Crete. The, 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 possibly multiple churches. Remind them. Remind means to recall. So it refers back to the body of Christ needs to be reminded to strive towards the things that are going to be said, and that is good works. We need these, we need these reminders many. We need them often because we can easily become self-focused. This time, Pastor Stephen actually said it earlier, it's, it's been a time of, of many trials for many people. Uh, just even in praying this morning, there's so many people that have lost loved ones recently. This trials are difficult. And when you go through trials and difficulty, both personally and also as a church, if you look at the history of our church, some of you have been here a little longer, we've gone through trials. There's been changes that have been trials. And when that happens, oftentimes you begin to look inward. You're trying to, to serve and help and try to, to, to make it through. It's like our bodies. How many of you had aches and pains? Yeah. <laughs> and, and me, I'm getting a little older. Not, not, and it's, I, uh, they begin to multiply, right? And when you have aches and pains, what do you do? You think about those aches and pains. As you walk and every step you feel that little pain in your knee or ankle, it reminds you. And so you, it's natural to look at yourself. It is not natural. I, I don't feel your pains. You don't feel my pains. It's not as natural to look out outside ourselves. So we need to focus and remind ourselves to look out of ourselves, to be, to, to be focused on others. If you spend two minutes, and we will longer than that here, looking at these exhortations towards good works, they're all about relationships between people. Seeing others and being involved in their, in their lives and, and, and being to care for them. Both people who are inside the church, church members, and those who are outside, looking outside of ourselves. And that's what we see here in verses 1 and 2. We want to see the needs of others and meet them. See their aches and pains, see the trials they're going through and meet those needs. In verses 1 and 2, the first two works to deal with, they revolve around humility. But it's humility in two areas. The first one is for submission to rulers and authorities. And then right after that in verse 2, it's about um, kindness towards who? Well, it actually says at the end of verse 2, toward all people. A primary concern of the church is being a fragrance, not just the inside, but to the outside. Our mission is to present Jesus to the world, to convince the world of the truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's important for the church to reflect the work of Christ. But there's a conflict here. The world is never going to be attracted to the church. For the church represents Jesus. And what did the, what did the world do to Jesus? The world killed Jesus. And, and all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the, the, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they're, they're against God. So the church is, in some sense, always at odds with the world because Jesus, who's in the church, is reflected back and it shows them just the sinfulness in which they live. That, that's what happens. Jesus reveals that. 
So, how can the church be a witness to the world? Well, it begins with humility. The world is hardened to God, but there are some that God is calling out of the world. There are, there are some who re- realize the, the failings of the world. They, they realize that the world disappoints. And they, they realize that they need something else. And so the fragrance of Jesus through the church comes from the church. There's unknown outsiders. We don't know who they are. But as we serve and, and show humility, then these are drawn towards Jesus. It's the, the smell and the aroma of his people. And this models what Jesus did. The Son of God, how did he show humility? Well, he entered into this world, what we're going to be celebrating here at Christmas. And he humbled himself. God became man. The one who was perfect became a man. And he lived as a man without sin. He showed humility in that way. Are we sinless? No. (laughs) We also live in this world. And we show our humility by recognizing our sinfulness. We declare it. We say, we know that we're broken, sinful people. And we then proclaim the goodness of Jesus and his salvation. That's actually what verse 3 looks at. It says, look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The beginning of the good news is always begins with the bad news, that we need Jesus, that we are sinners. This is the gospel. And it is acknowledgement of our rottenness. It's like the Thanksgiving meal that smells of decay. <laughs> yeah, nasty. That, that's who, who we are. We have to begin there. And recall, by recalling that, it humbles us. It, it gives us a sense that we are no superior to anyone else. The world, the people in the world, we're all sinners. It's a level playing field. We've all been consumed by sin. And so what Paul wants us to do is recognize this, seeing this in verse 3, and in that, we are to submit to others, submit to the world. That's how we see it here in verses 1 and 2, to rulers and authorities. In order to honor God for the sake of those who are calling out of the world, the church is to submit and be obedient to rulers. These are, like in our country, elected officials. Uh, other places, it could be a king or a queen. It could be a dictator. It could be a prime minister. And authorities. Anyone who we've been placed under authority of. It could be parents or employers, coaches. It could be teachers. It displays humility in the church when they submit to and obey rulers and authorities. In addition, the church shows humility by, it says here in verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Being kind um, to others, to avoiding conflict and quarrels, to restrain when we feel like lashing out. This shows humility and kindness towards the world. We live in a a culture that's polarized, right? There's different. There's lots of. I believe this. I believe this. And there's there's battle. And in the midst of that, we live in a culture that has a low view of authority, and a high view of speaking one's mind. These qualities are in direct contrast to what Paul's saying here, right? Paul has a high view of authority, and a low view of just speaking your mind. It's, it's a it's a quiet. It's a gentle spirit. 
If, if we feel like rebelling against authority or winning the argument and embarrassing the other side, we first must remind ourselves of Jesus. We remind ourselves of his humility and the fragrance that displayed in the humility of Jesus. It, it is he who submitted to human authority even though he is God. Uh, part of the problem with, um, I think, our thinking, just I'm saying in general, not each individual, but in general, is that we think that submission involves agreement. Like, I'll submit if I agree. And we think that authority is earned. Like, that person has to earn the authority they get. But that's actually not the way submission and authority work, right? So, submission is only submission when you have to submit, when it's actually in, 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 in dissension to what you're thinking. And authority isn't something that you just agree about and then you submit to it. Authority is given by God. Um, your parents are given to you. Our governors are given to us by the authority of God. Our teachers, we don't choose them. They're given to us. This is, the, this is a position that God, God gives. And so the church, living in a fallen world, must submit to imperfect rulers and be courteous to all. This is the place that God has put by trusting in his sovereign place in our life. Now, most of the time, when we end up talking about authority, we generally look for exceptions. And I found it interesting in this section, Paul doesn't list any exceptions here. He just says, submit to rulers and authorities and be kind to all. And I think the reason, we know there are exceptions when you submit to authority. If if someone's being abusive, there's the reason not to be in submission to it. But... Paul's point is not that here. He wants us to realize it is pri- the primary way in which you relate to the world is to submit to submit and obey and to be gentle with outsiders. And it's all for the sake of the witness of Christ. I think this is a hard message for us and who we are in this time. Obeying authorities and listening to them. We as a church have a real opportunity to stand out in our culture. Humble submission and kindness, it will stand out. If you want to stand out for the, to the world and show, wow, these are people who really realize God is sovereign and, and, and then respond and turn to the, the rulers of Houston place, you will stand out as a Christian. It will be a witness to the humility of Jesus. So the questions are, are you known for your submission and your peacemaking. Are, are, are we a people as a church who submit to our rulers and authorities? In a, in a world that has a low view of authority, are we a church who like, makes sure we don't slander and speak out against others? Those who even are so-called our enemies, that we, we hold our tongue, that we're gentle. We need to remind and remember. Remind ourselves that this is our, our, our duty before God, And to remember that we are no different than anyone else. We are all sinners. We're all on the level playing field. Remind and remember where we came from. And in so doing, humility is showed. And humility gives off the fragrance of Christ. Because that is what Jesus has done. The freedom of Christ. The second agreement we're going to look at is thankfulness. We're going to look at this in verses 4 through 8. Let me read 4 through 8 again. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out 
on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. So before we dig into this text, I'll give you a little um, diagram for what's happening here. In in verses 4 through 7, Paul is um, rehearsing the gospel. This may have been a a hymn or a saying they had. And we kind of know that because in verse 8 it says, this is a trustworthy saying. This is Paul saying, what has just been said, it's true, it's trustworthy, and it's something that the church had repeated often. So, in this weekend in which we celebrate uh, thankfulness... I think it's good to consider what causes us to be thankful. What causes us to be thankful? And I put forth to you that we're most thankful for the gifts that we least deserve. Would you hear that? We're most thankful for the gifts we least deserve. Um, When my wife loves me in spite of my sin, and and, and she, she stands up to me at times and helps me to fight against my sin, um, this last, or actually, I think it was even last night, I'll admit this. My wife said to me, you've been irritable this week. She's not rejecting me. She's standing with me, but she's helped me to battle with my sin. That's an undeserved gift for which I'm thankful. When our, our, our boss will make a big mistake or we cause a problem, um, but then instead of just rejecting us or getting rid of us or firing us, stands alongside us and helps us to improve and grow. These are undeserved gifts and, and, and for ones that we're thankful. These are gifts that we don't deserve. And for that reason, there is no greater gift in all the world for which to be thankful for than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, um, we saw that this was the, the bad news, that we're all sinners. But in verses 4 through 7, now the good news just highlights the greatness of how undeserved we are in the gospel. Let me look at this. Let's look at it together. Verse 4. Because of God's goodness and loving kindness, God became a man in the person of Jesus, our Savior. He says, God, our Savior here. And then in verse 5, Jesus saved his people from sin and judgment that we deserved. And we were as far from deserving of that salvation as anyone could be. We did not earn it through any works at all. In fact, what did our works actually do? They were counter to that. We earned more judgment. And even so, Jesus washed us from our filth. And he washed us from our filth by his own giving of his own life. And, he, and then he brought new life to souls who were dead in sin. And he renewed us by his spirit and gave, made people who were dead into living um, living people in relationship to God. And then in verse, uh, we see in verse six, he then pours out his Holy Spirit and he does so in an abundant way, richly through Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of his people. And then in verse seven, even more, uh, we who are apart from God were orphans. He adopts them into his family, into the family of God. And he, he, he makes them heirs of all the riches of heaven. Um, eternal life for all. This is the gospel. And these are gifts that are completely undeserved. They're of grace, unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. And and there is no greater gift that is greater 
than the gospel. It, is, it, it brings forth thankfulness when we really reflect upon it. When we don't just let it pass us by. I'm imperfect. I'm imperfect in sticking with people. You are too. But Jesus is not. I'm imperfect in helping other people. You are too. But Jesus is not. We don't deserve Jesus. But he gives himself to us freely. It's the greatest undeserved gift in all the world. It's the greatest reason to be thankful. That's why it's called the gospel. It's why it's called good news. That's good news. Paul, like I said, he restates the gospel here in verses 4 through 7. But he has a reason for that. And the reason is, is the context of our passage, passage. Remember, there are teachers coming in and perverting the gospel, leading people astray. And when the gospel is perverted, it was changed or disregarded, the recipe for a working church, it's spoiled. Therefore, in verse 8, Paul insists, he says, I want you to insist on these things. Well, what things? I want you to insist on the freeness of the gospel, that it's undeserved, so that, so that people will be able to live in a way that shows forth the good works of Jesus. Says, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It is only the true gospel, one that is of grace, one that is undeserved, that will give people a heart of gratitude, a heart of thankfulness. It produces works that nothing else in all the world could because it's, it is freely given, undeserved. And these works, they honor God because they're not of us. They testify to the world because they're, it's such a free gift and they profit the people of God. Uh, think of it this way. A false gospel is like a wax turkey and an air freshener. <laughs> it, it never will satisfy. It might look good and smell good, but it's going to leave you more hungry, more lustful for a different turkey. Right? That, that aroma won't do it. it, is, it a, a counterfeit gospel will never lead to life change, but the true gospel, a gospel that is undeserved, a gospel is of grace. It results in thankfulness, which leads to good works. Are you thankful for the undeserved favor of Jesus in your life? Are you? Amen? Are you thankful for the end of That he doesn't reject you. Because my wife didn't reject me last night. <laughs> she told me I was, in, I was being irritable. She didn't reject me. Jesus is the one who can reach into our lives, does not reject us, but helps us to pull us from sin, to save us, and to work on us. Jesus will never disappoint. He, he, he may be rejected by the world, but he's alive in people who he's called out of the world. And we want to call others to taste and see that Jesus is good. Taste and see that Jesus is good. Personally, we asked, are we a thankful church? Are we a corporate body? Do we reflect that we're thankful for the goodness of God? Do we have gratitude for salvation as a corporate body? And in response, do we devote ourselves to good works? 
Is that seen by others? Are we motivated by the grace? Is that, is that how our church lives and works? Are we motivated by grace? The gospel is the recipe for good works. We begin, our first ingredient, we begin with humility. And it leads to thankfulness. And then finally, this last ingredient, we're going to look at this interdependence. Interdependence. And I'll explain what what I mean. But let's read verses 9 through 15 again. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to spend, speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help the, ca- the cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. The church, we know, is a corporate body built up of many individuals that are united in the gospel. They're different from one another, but their, their unity becomes, when they're united to Jesus, they unite to one another. That, that's, that, that makes the whole. And the individuals will make personal sacrifice, give of self for the body, for the whole. In, in verses 1 through 2, we saw these good works in relationship to outsiders. And, and you know, we could sum that up by humble submission to authorities and by kindness towards all. In verses 9 and following, here what we see, 9 and following, these are primarily relationships within the church. And they can be described as interdependent, depending on one another, care for each other. And the first priority for caring for one another is, it relates to the gospel, it's protecting the gospel. The gospel is what unites people together, the church together. People that are of great diversity, they only unite because of Jesus, because of his work, the good news of his life. And then when they give up their independence, they give up their independence for dependence upon Jesus, interdependence with his church. So if the focus of the church is the gospel, that's how it unites us, and the gospel is harmed, then the church will fracture. So the most important piece to interdependence of the church is that the gospel is held strong. In in verse 9, Paul says, and says in strong terms here, to preach against division. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Anything that calls or brings division, he says, they're worthless, they're unprofitable. Stop those things. Don't be involved in them. And then in verses 10 and 11, he then calls out particular individuals, probably some of these false teachers that are causing that division. And he's very firm on what's to be happening here. He says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, this is an, an impatient, um, there's time, there's, there's, the, the, there's warning. But if it continues, knowing the, uh, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. To me, when I first read this, it seems odd that Paul is 
preaching against division, but then he's calling for division, right? It seems a little bit contradictory. But the unity of the gospel is so important that division must occur first for the sake of the gospel. If, if, if there's going to be, the gospel is going to be lost, it's better to divide over the gospel. Because the only true unity is found in the gospel. God, uh, unity outside the gospel is a facade, it's a lie. The gospel is the recipe for a working church. And the ingredients for the working church, interdependence, interdependence depends on the gospel. If the, if the gospel is broken, then those who are causing harm to the gospel must be removed. And again, removal is also always with time and patience and warning. But if persistent division occurs, there must be removal. So here, here's a question to us as a church and, and to us personally. Let's start personally. Do you involve yourself in foolish controversies that kind of people unite around those controversies, but not around the gospel? Is that a tendency for you? Are there quarrels in which you have agreement with certain people and you find camaraderie in that, but they're not about the good news? Um, I don't know. Maybe the endless news cycles and how people attach to those. Just maybe an example. And to our church, is the gospel so important that we would ultimately divide for the sake of unity? Is the gospel that important? I, I, there's, sir, I'm going to try to destroy this. There's two problematic sides here. There's one person that would be too harsh, too uncaring. They would want to reject people quickly and not warn and be kind and work through it. On the other side, there's a, a sentimentality of relationship and never breaking because you're so attached to someone else personally. There's two kind of two sides that can fall here. I think probably most of us fall in the category that we're, we're, we're attached in relationships. It's hard. I, I, I love unity. I strive to bring people together. It's pain, painful to break relationship. So the question is, is the gospel, do we realize the gospel is so important that we would divide for the sake of unity? And this is where we must trust the word of God. And we have to trust what Paul's saying here. If, you are not, if we're not united in the gospel, there cannot be unity. It's so hard to break relationship, but it's better for the whole of the church, for the longevity of the church, for the gospel. For the church cannot fulfill its work in the gospel when the gospel is compromised. This, there's, there's much gospel work that needs to be done. And, and this is where, following this text, Paul leads to. He closes this letter to Titus by making arrangements for their gospel work. We're going to see that in verses 12 through following. And he makes these arrangements about travel plans, about how these guys are going to help each other. We see several names here. We see Paul and Titus. And then we see Artemis, Tychicus, Zenus, and Apollos. And they all, um, they're kind of, they're going to be flip-flopping locations, helping each other out. They all need each other, and they're needed by each other. They're all seeking to further the gospel, so that they're sacrificing and covering for one another. You see here that um, when I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me. So send Artemis and Tychicus over there, and you come over to me at Nicopolis. And then, as well as Zenus, 
Uh, um, do your best to speed him, Zenos, and Apollos. They're needed over here. See that they lack nothing. Care for one another. There's an interdependence happening here within the church. They're spending their lives together for the care of the church. Um, they need each other. They're needed. But Paul's instructions don't just apply to these leaders. We see in verse 14, it applies to all of us. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul calls for the whole church to do something. It says to learn to devote themselves to good works, to help care for urgent needs. In a church... Some of us have more, some of us have less. Some of us have big families, some of us have small. Some are old, uh, some are young. Uh, some have health needs, some are healthy. Some have great amounts of wealth, some have small. We need each other. The gospel work of the church is to, to provide for one another. Um, wisdom from wisdom is needed. We need to try strength when strength is needed for each other. There may be someone who needs shelter, a place to stay, food, or, or maybe someone needs a companion, someone to be invited over for a Thanksgiving meal. Every member is to able to has every every member here has something that you can offer to the community, and you also have something that you need from the community. The gospel is the recipe for a working church and. Our interdependence in the gospel is an important ingredient in this work. So we must, we must learn to be independent. See, it says learn that, learn to do these things. We need to train ourselves. It doesn't always come natural. We need to learn these things. Again, it's easy to think of ourselves. We must learn to devote ourselves to others. My aches, they tell me, help myself. They don't tell me to help you. It is easy to please ourselves. My taste buds want more turkey than you get. <laughs> it's not easy to learn to please others. I want to I make this suggestion. The first way for us to learn to be independent is this. Your presence. Just showing up and being around the church is the way you're going to learn to be interdependent with the church. If you, when you come here on Sundays, preaching to the choir because you're on a Thanksgiving weekend. If, if you go to a um, a small group, or you go to a youth group, or you just go over to someone's house uh, during the week and um, you, you just meet up and have a conversation, you go out to coffee with people. You are going to gain interdependence with each other just by having your presence with them. It could be a phone call. It could be an email. Being with people, communicating, is the first way that you learn to have interdependence. Because when you communicate with people, you learn about their, their pains. I'm going to tell you about my aching ankle if we're, if we're with each other long enough. You're going to get tired of it. <laughs> we, we get to know each other by being with each other. You do have something other needs. You have resources that others could uh, be helped by. You might have wisdom. You might have compassion that they need. Maybe you've gone through an experience that someone else just needs encouragement in right now. No one else could speak to them about that thing. You have that. So, how can you become more interdependent with your church? How can you do that? Well, first thing, you've got to show up. Secondly, just find relationships, grow in people. 
And, and what gospel work would the Lord have you to do in this community? How might you sacrifice of yourself, of your possessions, of your provision for the whole of the community? This is the way we become independent. This is the way the good works of Jesus are shown off. This is the way the gospel goes forward. Let me close with the way I began. Again, I love sweet potato casserole. It is my favorite. And if someone, though, decided to change one of the ingredients in that recipe, we would have words, all right? <laughs> Let's just say we would have words. For sweet potato casserole is not sweet potato casserole if you change what's in it, if you change the recipe. The ingredients are important. The gospel is the only recipe that can produce a working church, a church that's humble, a church that knows where it came from, like, I'm a sinner just like everyone else, a a church that's thankful, knowing that the gospel is so undeserved. I didn't earn any of this. It's by grace and the ingredients of interdependence, knowing that we need one another, that we depend on one another. These are the recipe, this is the recipe of a working church. Let us devote ourselves to, to be a, a church that works and serves others, both outside the church and inside the church, by grace. May the aroma of the gospel flow from our lives, and may more people taste and see that the Lord is good. L- look at the very end of verse 15. It just says, grace be with you all. After a morning of talking about, and actually this whole Titus, this book, it talks a lot about gospel living, gospel, good works. What do we need to do those? We need grace. And that's why Paul concludes with, grace be with you all. Maybe God's grace be with us all as we try to live these things out. Let me pray. And we can stand. Lord Jesus, um, thank you for your grace. We need more and more of it. Lord, help us to be those who live out the, the, the work that you've done in our lives as, as you've poured out um, your goodness to us, as your gospel has transformed us. May we then live that out in the world. Give us humility, knowing where we have come from, knowing who we are apart from you. Um, give us thankfulness, and a thankfulness that we are thankful today, but then we're thankful tomorrow for the gospel and thankful the next day, that we daily be thankful for your unmerited favor. And Lord, help us to grow in depending upon one another and living that in this community as, as one, one body in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.